Our scripture reading for today is from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. You can find it on page 840 in the Bible in your pew. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But, but he wrenched, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here and glad to be with you uh, to bring you God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we meet this morning, we pray that you'd be with us. We pray that you'd give us your spirit as you promised you will. And that you would do a miracle amongst us. And by miracle, that you would soften hardened hearts. That we may see and hear things otherwise we could not as we look at your word. We pray this for your glory alone. Amen. Well, as many as you know, we are in a a series in the book of Mark, looking at uh, discipleship in the kingdom of God. And last week we looked at the question, how does the kingdom grow? How does the kingdom grow? And and this morning I want us to look at another question, and that is how do we experience the kingdom? How do we experience the kingdom of God? And as we defined last week, we said the, the kingdom of God is this big, huge thing, right? It's this idea that, well, in one, one sense, it, it, it's, the, it's where the rule of God and Jesus being enthroned and, and, and being sovereign over that rule is, 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 a, is being worked out. 
And that's where Christians are in this world, right? Um, but at the same time, um, that's not complete, right? We know that. Um, and the Bible tells us that that kingdom comes fully when Jesus returns and rules over all things in his way. Um, and so we, we, we wait for that. We long for that. But we also experience some of that now, right? And so what does that look like? How do we experience the kingdom of God now? If we could take this massive massive term um, and break it down a little bit. How do we experience it now? And the one way that we experience God's kingdom, primarily I would even suggest, but especially coming from our text this morning, is by or through mercy. It's by or through mercy. And I I quickly just want to get to it because we got a lot to look at this morning. Three things, three ways that we experience the kingdom of God by or through mercy. And that is uh, by, by compassion, as Jesus comes to us, to the lost, as he comes to restore the lost, and as he comes to give us a new name. Those are the three things we're going to look at. Again, I, I don't think they're printed in your bulletin, so I'll say them again. We experience the kingdom as Jesus comes to show us compassion, to bring compassion to the lost, as Jesus comes to restore the lost, and as he comes to give us a new name. Okay? So let's look at that first one in that order. We experience the kingdom of God by mercy as Jesus has compassion on the lost. This story simply begins, as you just heard, they came to the other side of the sea. Now, first, we we don't know why Jesus and his disciples are are coming here. Uh, We don't know what he has set out to accomplish Um, it's more likely that as they were out at sea, because the story before this, the the big storm came, the disciples were scared. They wake him up. He's asleep in the, Jesus asleep in the boat. They wake him up. He calms the storm. They're afraid. And then we move directly into the story. It's possible that while they're at sea, Jesus probably maybe even hears this man who is possessed by a demon. He sees him and he has compassion on this man. And he says, we're going to shore now. If that's the case, and you're the disciples, and I, I'm saying, let's put ourselves in, in, in the disciples' shoes at this point, and you're seeing this, and you're seeing Jesus say, we're going to shore. I mean, I know I'm thinking, oh, 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 no, no, Jesus, no, please, please, no. Let's, let's not go here. Um, I just, this is too messy. This is too awkward. Um, and basically, all of the Jewish law forbids us from even coming and approaching this person. Let's not get involved. I'm just just expressing my own heart here. I don't know if that's you this morning, but that would certainly be me. And of course, Jesus would be reading my thoughts, and there I would be. But um, that's kind of that's kind of where we are here as as, as they go to shore. Um, for Jews, it was against the law to be around tombs or burial caves, as we read here in this text, because they were what they were unclean according to the law. On top of that, this man is naked and bleeding, more uncleanness, not allowed to be around that. Not to mention that he has a legion of demons in him, right? There's so much here that says don't get involved if you're Jewish at this point, which these people were, um, that, that they, they, they didn't need any more excuses to not go to shore But to make matters worse, this is clearly Gentile territory. And we know that by the name of the the place uh, that they go. Um, And also we can say this as much. Like there are no Jewish pig farmers in Israel. So context clues helping us out here. 
so as I said, as, as a Jew, you have all the excuses in the world to not get involved. But what does Jesus do? He has compassion for this man. Because this man is the picture of all that is lost, of all that is unclean, of all that is broken. So Jesus moves towards him. He moves towards this awkwardness, towards this, this you know, all that is undeserving. That generally speaking, that if we were to see this today, we would just, oh, let's just not get involved. Let's not get, this is too messy. Uh, but Jesus doesn't do that. And as a result, we see, as we read here, this man is actually about to experience the kingdom of God through mercy as Jesus comes to shore to meet him. As Jesus has compassion on him. And guess who knows it first? It's, it's the demons. They're the first to know this. Jesus is parking the boat on shore and coming for him. And the legion of demons knows it. It's a stunning picture. It's a stunning picture. But this is my first point. We experience the kingdom by mercy as Jesus has compassion on the lost. And as he simply moves towards them. And this is what he does for us too. This is what he does for us too. There is really no difference between this demon-possessed man living in the tombs and our circum, you know, and, our, and us. Besides our circumstances, okay? Uh, thankfully, we don't have a legion of demons in us this morning. I'm just going to assume that. But, um, and we can praise God for that. But we all come here, what, lost? We all come here unclean. We all come here messy, awkward. There are things about us that we know that we don't want anybody else to know. Because we felt that they would, if we, if we knew that they knew them, it would just sort of say, hey, don't get involved. Like there are things spiritually among us that, that just say, don't get involved. We struggle at best to love God and neighbor. We know that internally. We don't follow the commandments the way that we should. We covet all the time. We break those things. We don't worship just God alone. We worship other gods. So to follow the law is difficult. We break them. And as a result, we are unclean. We are unclean. This guy may be a little bit further circumstantially down the road than us because of what is happening to him. But for the most part, we are the same in however well we dress it up here on Sunday morning, right? On the outside, our hearts inside, they're a mess. They are a mess. Like this man that Jesus comes for. But it's right in those moments, right? That that Jesus looks at you and thankfully, what? Has compassion on you and moves towards you. This is how you experience the kingdom today. This is mercy. It's God's mercy as he moves towards you, not to destroy, but to make clean again, to restore you, to bring you into his own. Now, before we move on to this next point, there's an assumption that we tend to carry as we read this story. And that is, we think that this demon-possessed man deserves compassion, deserves mercy. We look at him and we think how awful and we should. <laughs> there should be empathy here. But the Bible doesn't carry that assumption. The Bible doesn't agree with us when we think that this man deserves compassion or mercy. In fact, as we'll see, this man is the picture of, of where our sin leads us, which is death. This is why it's mercy, friends. 
We, we don't deserve what Jesus has come to do for us. And this man is no different. Just suffice it to say, and there's much more to say about this, but we don't have time. Mercy is not mercy if it's deserved. Mercy is somebody not getting what they deserve. Mercy, how we experience the kingdom of God by definition, is not getting what we deserve. So as we continue, let us remember that the Bible sees us to blame for our sin and the brokenness of this world, which means that any act of compassion, right, any movement towards us by God is mercy alone. It's mercy alone. So we experience the kingdom by mercy as Jesus has compassion on the lost and moves towards the lost. Second, we experience the kingdom by mercy as Jesus comes to restore the lost. Experiencing the kingdom by mercy in the scriptures is not just having compassion towards someone who doesn't deserve it. Mercy is actually seeking the wholeness of that person. So this raises the bar again, doesn't it, right? I might have compassion, but I'm not that interested in seeking the wholeness of this person. I might not have time, one, or I just might not be that nice. There is a lot of similarity between the parable of the Good Samaritan and what we see Jesus doing here. If you're familiar with that story, it's full restoration. Compassion has brought Jesus to this man, but that's not where his mercy stops. And this is where I want to focus our attention. When Jesus comes into our lives, his mercy to us, the way we experience the kingdom is explosive. It is disruptive and it is full and it is so explosive. It is so disruptive and it is so full. It causes those who have experienced it, who have seen it to be afraid. Again, the story before this, the disciples seeing Jesus calm the storm. That, that, that is an ex- experiencing moving the, 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 the um, the chaos of the world to what? To order. That's what the kingdom does. And what's their response? They're afraid. When Jesus comes in to restore this man, as we'll see, and, and the townsmen leave and come back, the herdsmen leave and come back to bring people to show them what's happened, what's their response? They're afraid. Because why? The mercy, that, that we, the way we experience the kingdom through God's mercy, it is always explosive, disruptive, and full. And we see that really in three ways here. As we look at what's happened to this man in verse 15, we see that this man is now sitting. We see this man is now clothed and we see that this man is in his right mind. And they all say something extremely powerful about what Jesus has done for him. First, he's sitting there. As you notice, this man has gone from very violent behavior, as we read, to sitting uh, in the presence of Jesus, presumably listening to him. Now, For some of us here this morning, we have that child or or maybe that family member that if they were to suddenly be calm, to be sitting, to not be breaking everything in my house and not making it their job to not listen to me, then we would probably be afraid, honestly speaking. Something would not be right. How much more for someone like this man where people tried to uh, subdue him with chains, but he kept breaking them. He was so messy, awkward, and do not, there was nothing they could, they, they put him in the outskirts of the town where people are buried. In other words, what they were saying about this man, and this is, this is big, is that you're, you're basically already dead, even though your, your heart's still beating. That's what they were doing for this person. But now he sits in one's presence He sits in Jesus' presence at his feet restored. 
And to do that, to, to, to be sitting in what, at one's feet throughout the scriptures, especially was a sign of allegiance or submission to their authority. He could leave, but he, he doesn't want to. Restoration, then, according to Jesus, is not restoring someone that they may go on by themselves to live a happy, normal life. Restoration, friends, script from the, according to the Bible, is restoring you and me back to Jesus himself. Those who experience the kingdom in Jesus Christ recognize I no longer belong to me. I belong to the one who has rescued me. And see, this is in contrast today, I think, with so much of what religion, even Christianity, uh, proclaims. <clears throat> Christianity in many places of the world today is Jesus give me happy, Jesus give me normal, uh, don't ask me, uh, don't ask anything of me type of lives. It's instead, Jesus fix me, Jesus you know, help me, Jesus give me my dreams. <clears throat> but that's not what Jesus has come to do because that's not what we need. That's not what this guy needs. We need to be restored back to God, back to Jesus, where ironically, we actually get more than we could ever dream. But we need to be restored back to him, which means discipleship says, I don't belong to me. I belong to someone else. This man gets that and sits now at Jesus's feet. Stunning. The second thing we notice is he's clothed. Now, Luke's account has him naked, but with all the cutting and living outside, he might as well be naked. And nakedness in the Bible often uh, indicates shame. Shame. <clears throat> we feel shame not as a result of something we've done, which is guilt. Shame says that there's a problem with who we are internally. Brene Brown has made a living talking about shame, and she defines it this way. She says, guilt equals I did something bad. But shame equals I am bad. See the difference? Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Adam and Eve, if we go back to the garden <clears throat> where this all started, uh, they experienced both of these in the garden after they took the fruit of uh, the forbidden tree. Once they did this, the text says what? That their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. So they covered themselves up with what? Fig leaves. They felt guilt for doing something wrong, taking the fruit. But they also felt shame. I am bad. Which leads you to cover up. To cover that nakedness. Which equals shame in scripture. So we too try to cover up, don't we? But one of the tragedies of the fall is that for the first time, shame has entered into God's good creation. And shame has no place in God's kingdom. This is the tragedy, and no doubt this man in, in Mark's account experienced an enormous amount of shame, being tormented, being cast out, being left for dead. But Jesus does what? He clothes them. He clothes them. It's very simple. It's nothing profound, on the outside at least. But he clothes them. And with it, begins to restore his dignity by removing his shame. This is what happens when we experience the kingdom, friends. We are called away and out of behaviors or experiences that have brought shame on us, whether they are things that we have done personally or things that people have done to us. They no longer get to define who we are. 
Shame is a foreign emotion in the economy of God. And as we'll see, only Jesus has the ability to to truly clothe us in something new. To restore our shame. And friends, that is mercy. It's nothing we deserve. It's nothing this man deserves. If the church is bringing mercy then to broken and messy places... One of its signs that it is from Jesus is that it involves the removal of shame from the individual. Only Jesus can truly do this. This is what restoration looks like. Lastly, this man is also in his right mind. So he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's been clothed by Jesus in the text. He's in his right mind. Verse 15 there. Or to, to put it another way, he is sober. He's able to exercise self-control over himself. It is dehumanizing in all senses of the word to not be able to control yourself. This is why, just to use an example, drunkenness is a sin in Scripture. Not alcohol. Drunkenness. It is not that it's a sin because it's wrong. (laughs) Just wrong. It's wrong because it's dehumanizing for you to drink so much that you cannot control yourself. And this is because God has such a high view of you that he calls anything that makes you less than your image of God's status sin. This man's restoration includes him being in his right mind because that is who he is supposed to be. That is who God has created him to be. And so as James Edwards writes, sort of in a concluding statement, this is a picture then of discipleship and salvation. A restored individual sitting at the feet of Jesus. So when Jesus comes to restore the lost, we see a movement towards all that mankind was intended to be. We see a removal of all that is dehumanizing. We see a removal of shame or a reformatting of who you are supposed to be. We see a removal of disorder and chaos in one's life as he sits at Jesus' feet, clothed and fully restored. This is how we experience the kingdom of God today. And it is all an act of mercy. It is explosive, it is disruptive, and it is full. You can't just have a little bit of the kingdom of God. You can't just have a a little bit of its power or Jesus. You get all of it, so much so that it actually has the ability and does so change your name. And this gets to our, our last point. That we experience the kingdom by mercy as Jesus comes to give us a new name. Our modern ears might not have picked up on this. But to clothe the man in this day. To clothe the man in this day and age as Jesus does and did. Is to say that you belong to me. It's a very, the optics here are telling. If you're watching this. William Lane in his commentary of Mark cites the ancient Near East understanding that to clothe the man is to adopt him. This is why the man now in his right mind asks to remain with Jesus in verse 18. The text actually says he begs to be with Jesus, but Jesus has other plans for him as, as, as we see. Now a disciple of the king, he must go and tell what the king has done for him. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. 
In other words, how he had compassion on you, how he has restored you and he was, how he has given you a new name. You are no longer under the authority or are defined by or carry the identity of this legion uh, or, or, or carry even the identity of this outcast. You are an heir of the kingdom of God. You are an adopted son of the most high God. This is how we experience the kingdom. It's mercy. When Jesus clothes you, friends, he makes you his own. Paul in Galatians 4, 4 writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Ephesians 1, 5, Paul says that God predestined us for adoption. So it's this purpose all along. God's purpose for all of us is to give us a new name, to give us a new identity. And that's what adoption does. This man goes from having 2,000 names that are legion to one son of the most high God. You're my beloved. And this is what happens when Jesus clothes this man. And this is what happens when Jesus clothes us to this morning. This is, this is where we, we meet the gospel. Where does this clothing take place for us? Where, where will this clothing actually take place for this man ultimately? It will not be in a courtroom where adoption tends to take place today, but it will be on the cross. It'll be on a cross. The story begins with a man naked outside the city shouting incomprehensible things. But it ends with him restored, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Jesus' ministry begins with the father looking at him in his baptism that we saw, saying, you are my beloved. But where will Jesus' ministry end? Right. Jesus will be the one naked outside the city, screaming incomprehensible things. As he suffers and he dies for you. It is there that your sin and my sin, right? It is, it is, it is there that that is where that is dealt with. And in exchange for that, we receive a new name. That is where our sin, where, where all that is messy, that all that is broken, all that is unclean. That is where that is dealt with. Along with evil altogether at the cross, we see the bigger picture, don't we? How God will clothe us, not in new linens, but in the righteousness of his son. How Jesus' blood washes as white as snow, as David proclaims. But that always comes at a cost. Even 2,000 pigs is not enough to pay for this man's sins nor yours. But God's mercy to us this morning says that that judgment, what you deserve, that will not fall on you It will fall on me. That's how the demons are going to be dealt with. That is how you will be made clean. That is how you will receive and get a new name. And that's mercy, friends. That is how each of us experiences the kingdom. So we've seen how we experience the kingdom and Jesus' compassion for us. We've seen how we experience the kingdom as Jesus restores us to himself and Lastly, how he gives us a new name. So what does this mean for us as disciples of this kingdom? And just a couple of points of application. 
as I moonwalk backwards and get some water. Excuse me. I want to give us this one thought as we look at discipleship in the kingdom of God, as we look at this, after we look at this, this account. And that is discipleship, following Jesus, um, you know, however you want to phrase that, looks like sitting at Jesus' feet then as we move towards the lost. It's a both and, right? It looks like sitting at Jesus' feet as we move towards the lost, which, which means as you go, as you go, you are always talking about what Jesus has done for you. How he has shown you mercy. And this understanding of mercy then, how Jesus comes to restore us instead of giving us what we deserve, is both the beginning then of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and the place we never leave. You don't graduate from this. Your experiences of God's mercy new every morning, right, is how we experience the kingdom until Jesus finally comes. But, you know, for, as it pertains to discipleship, why is it the case? Well, it's the case because disciples or Christians, you know, whatever you want to call it at this point, are people who know very well that they are not sitting at Jesus' feet because of their own strength, because of their own power, or because of their own will and desire. Friends, discipleship, following Jesus, is a broken man's game. It is not a proud man's game. It's the ability to say, I did not and could not make it here on my own. I am the the messy, the awkward, broken, the don't get involved sinner that Jesus had compassion for. That Jesus and his authority called me, moved towards me, restored me, and he gave me a new name. And, and you never leave that spot. I never leave that spot. That's what discipleship looks like. To sit at his feet as we go. To tell people what, what Jesus has done for me. For us. Not to tell them what they should be doing. And how wrong they are. This is both the beginning of discipleship, right? And it's the place we never leave. If, if, if you think that you brought yourself to Jesus' feet, and this, this kind of reinforces the point, this, these are the, the dangers of this, then, then you think that you have brought, Jesus, you, you brought yourself to Jesus' feet by your power. And if, and if this is the case, and please listen to me. If you have brought yourself to Jesus' feet, if you're the reason you're in that kingdom, then Jesus now owes you something. And if Jesus owes you something... You will not go when he calls you to places you don't want to go for the sake of the kingdom. As his follower, you will be as, as the parable of the sower in chapter four. You'll be that second soil, right? Where, 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 where the seed falls on that shallow ground, it sprouts. But when, when trials come, it, it blows away. Mercy says God owes me nothing. That's where we live. But the other side of that, the cousin to mercy that we like to talk about too, grace, says that he's given us everything. He's given us everything in his kingdom, in his time, as we saw last week. Understanding that you have been shown mercy by God, which is what he wants this restored man to go and proclaim, is both the beginning of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and the place we never leave. We all sit at Jesus' feet as we move to the lost 
Here's another reason why. If you today, if you're thinking or if you think I have, I have done this, I brought myself to Jesus' feet. Then you're also saying that, that you don't need him to fully clothe you. And do you see that? This is what I love about this story is that this man is at the mercy of Jesus all the way. There are no parts of him that he can kind of, what, fix? There are no parts of him that he has control over even. And it's very similar to the paralytic that gets lowered through the roof. This once demon-possessed man, though, he can't clothe himself literally even if he wanted to. He can't fix himself. And what a picture of our own hearts internally. Of our neediness. That we are at the mercy of God. We need his blood to clothe us to make us right. But where you think you're fine, where you don't need that mercy to extend, is where you don't fully need Jesus to clothe you. And Jesus must clothe all of you all the time. This is what he says to Peter. John chapter 13, when, they're, when he's washing their feet. Right? The metaphors are sort of the same. How are you going to be made clean, Peter? I have to wash you. All of you, if you are going to what? Have your share with me. If I don't, you have no share with me, Jesus says. Remember, the table that we will come to later, that we will eat at, says that even on our best days, we needed somebody to die for us. If you brought yourself to the feet of Jesus, then you are saying there are places that you don't need him to clothe you, to make you clean. Discipleship, again, is a broken man's game. So where do we start? Even as a church, as individuals, where do we start? Even, even people that, that would even say that wouldn't consider themselves disciples of Jesus. Where do I start? And I, I think that we start um, by watching. By watching. And, and, and it's here that we must notice something that is all but hidden in this story. Where are Jesus' disciples while all this is going on? Right? They make no appearance, but they're there. What are they doing? They're watching. They're watching Jesus move in compassion towards this person. They're watching Jesus restore this person, right, in ways that, that, that actually some of those who become apostles will be able to do. But ultimately, what is external points to the internal, what I need, which is mercy. And if these guys have any hope right, of moving out for the sake of the kingdom, it's going to come because they recognize that they need the same mercy, and so to come with Jesus and to sit there and watch is actually what we need to be doing too as, as a place that, that values discipleship. To bring people along with us to come and watch God's kingdom move in and through the city because mercy has come to us. Right? So if you're, if you're making food for somebody, call somebody to come with you to do that. Right? That's how we might watch. Right? If you're going to mentor a child, invite somebody to come with you to watch that. Don't put that all on your shoulders. Think about how much bigger the kingdom is. Invite people to come pray with you if you're praying for this church or this city. If you're going to volunteer at the Union Gospel Mission, what? Take somebody with you. They don't have to be qualified. They just need to come and watch. If we're going to be a place that values discipleship, and we are, we're going to have to be a place that trains and develops disciples, which simply means taking someone with you on your way as you bring the kingdom of God by way of mercy. 
We are all scared. We are all unqualified with no time on our hands. Trust me. But a seed must be planted. Otherwise, who will go? So what is keeping you from moving towards the loss? If you call yourself a disciple, if you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, what is keeping you from, from, from moving towards what is unclean? From, from what is messy, from what is awkward and unknown, from, from what, from maybe even just cultural, or a cultural standpoint here, from what has this sign above it that says, don't get involved. Would coming back to God's mercy on you begin to change that? How would it change that? We'll close here with just a quick story. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're a car person in here. Um, I'm not, I can't call myself a car person. I'm really not, um, not in the sense that I go to car shows and I know everything there is to know about certain cars, but I've been to car shows and I've been around car people and it's impressive and I get it. I get it. It's a really neat thing to, to go to a, to a car show, for example, and, and, and just kind of interact with somebody who knows everything there is to know about a 61 Mustang and, and what it looks like to bring that thing to full restoration Right, to know what colors were offered for this, this car when it came out, to know the changes in the model uh, from the previous year to this year, to know everything about it. it it's pretty impressive, and, and, and enough so that it does garner my attention, and especially for this one reality show that was uh, about restoring old cars. <clears throat> this guy is looking for some, some 40s or 50s truck model. It's a rare model. He can't find it, and he gets a phone call. From uh, this guy that just says, hey, I've got this model that you're looking for, but you might want to come out here and look at it to see if you want it. And so, of course, he drives out there. It's it's in a farm. And and then once he gets to the farm, it's like he's got to go to another farm (laughs) to go go look at this thing. And so the the farmer guy, the guy who owns the car, he takes him to it and he says, well, there it is. And, you know, the camera pans and I'm just looking at trees. I'm looking at like just overgrown. I don't see a car. And then all of a sudden, somewhere in the midst of it, you start to see a wheel maybe. And the guy goes and he checks it out and starts showing off. It's, just, it's, it's the, the right model. It's what he's been looking for. And of course, as the viewer, I'm just looking at this and I'm like, this, this thing is way too far gone, right? He is not taking this car. And this is exactly what, you know, they, they want the viewers to be asking because now I'm hooked. Now I've got to watch this thing. And sure enough, the guy says, I'll take it, <laughs> right? And, and they, they haul it out of there. And the rest of the show is him, you know, talking about this thing, talking about everything that, that, that's on it, that it needs. He's ordering parts. He's going here. He's fixing it. And surely... You know, scene by scene, this thing gets restored to its original, original spot. All because this man said, I'll take it. He said, I'll take it. He knew what he was looking at, but more importantly, he knew what it was supposed to be. The mercy of God in Jesus, friends, looks at you this morning. He looks at me and he looks at us on our worst days. He looks at us in the midst of the rubble and in the midst of the mess that sin has caused. And he says, without hesitation, I'll take it. I'll take it. You are not too far gone from me, Jesus says. I will have compassion. I will restore you to whole and clothe you in my precious blood and give you a new name. I will make you mine. And friends, that is mercy. 
That is how we experience the kingdom today. Now, go. Go and tell others how the Lord had mercy on you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. And it seems uh, like it's not enough to just say we're thankful that you looked at us in our sin and in our brokenness and our messiness. And you said, I will take it. And that you saw what we were supposed to be. And you were so sure of this, you died for us. You bore our sins so that one day we may experience the full restoration of ourselves, who we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to be with you, not just to ourselves, but we are to be and to belong with you. You've given us your name. You've adopted us. I pray that that would be the mercy that drives us then to go and share what we have found, what has been done for us to all those lost, hurting, broken needing encouragement um, in this world. We ask this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen.